Hey there, Romantics. I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabeau. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you'd like to support us even more, please tell your friends or your mom. And subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite listening app. We also have a Patreon if you'd like to give us some financial support. If not, we get it. No worries. All of our content is free for all of our listeners. Thank you again for your support of Womance. Thank you so much for listening. <sighs> Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Jack Frost sniffing at Thank you very much. Thank you. Everybody knows. Anytime, <laughs> anywhere, you get it, Linda. <laughs> Down here in the you front know. row. Let's hear it for my assistant, Linda. Jack Frost nipping at your toey doby doos. That was really beautiful. Thank you very much. I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabel. And this is Wellnance. A podcast about Yuletide. About sleigh rides. Sleigh rides. About mischief. It's about birds of prey. It's about only that one bed. It's about fake relationships. It's about becoming aware of your class privilege. It's about sleigh bells ringing. It's about hot toddies. It's about hot buttered rums. Mm-hmm. It's about foods. It's about a fine country courtship. That's right. But mostly that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. That was good. That was good. We're getting back on track. We're getting back uh, simpatico. This week, we are discussing... A Christmas Gone Perfectly Wrong by Cecilia Grant. By Cecilia Grant. This book... So we put out an ask on all of our social media channels, and by all, I mean two, Twitter and Instagram. Sorry, Facebook. And we asked for your Christmas novella recommendations, and we received so many great ones that we put together a blog post so that you guys could see all of the cool stuff that y'all recommended and, and share alike in the spirit of the season. But one <laughs> stood out for not only the number of submissions, but the ferocity of the submissions. And that's this book. Yes, it was vociferously recommended, which was interesting to me. I've read Cecilia Grant. She's actually one of the first romances I ever read as an adult adult. It was recommended to me by my very dear sister-in-law. She sent me A Lady Awakened, which ends up on a lot of lists because of its heroine. And so I was like, oh, I really like Cecilia Grant. Like, let's, let's see what this one's about. So... Yeah. Really quick, I do want to just give you a heads up. You may hear some buzzing in the backgrounds of our recordings. That's because we both have our heaters on. It's too cold to turn them off to record. We've crossed that bridge. You may also hear some elves in Santa's workshop, but it's actually just some construction workers still plugging away outside my office window. Wow. Tearing up the street with a multitude of jackhammers. They have the little, like, I guess you would say handheld personal jackhammers. They also have that giant thing, Mm. which, you know, it's a pretty apropos piece of hardware when you're talking about a steamy romance. It's true. It really is. The other thing I want to apologize for is if my voice sounds especially Kathleen Turner-like, it's because it's coated in mucus from my hot buttered rum. (laughs) When you can't get a goose... Settle for hot buttered rum. I mean, is it even really settling at that point? No, absolutely not. I was so thrilled to read a scene that included hot buttered rum in this book. I don't know if I like it better than eggnog. I don't know if I'm ready to go there. Okay, okay. I don't think I am. Okay. But it's very good. My recipe is much more elaborate than the one in the text, though. It's true. I am getting ahead of ourselves. Let's talk about what this book is about. Read the back of the book. Do you want the honors or shall I? You can do it if you want. I think you better do it because you had your phone in your hand. I don't know if I even have the... Sometimes you got to go on Goodreads. Not everything is handed to you wrapped up with a bow. You know, tis the season though. You know what I mean? I just want it to be pretty and I want it to be easy and like people don't want that. Are you a present peeler or a present terror? Present peeler. We always save the really nice paper. Man, that's fucked up. I mean, it's just the way that we grew up. My mom, like, invests money in the paper, so we reuse it year after year because it's, like, quite sturdy. I think all Libras are 
present peelers, actually. Oh, are we? All of us? My dad is a present peeler. Hmm. And I always, ever since I was small, I was like, what a weirdo. (laughs) Watching him open every present. It's also like the delayed gratification part of it. And I will say Christmas for me is different than birthday. Birthday, I am a terror. Christmas, I'm a peeler. That's so weird. Is what it is. I think it's weird enough to be a present peeler. Somehow it's worse that it's like occasion specific. Seasonal. Oh yeah, it's super occasion specific. You should see me at Easter. Individually taking out each little piece of green plastic grass. Carefully popping. Tossing it into a second Easter basket, the receiving basket. There it is. It should have been simple. With one more errand to go, the purchase of a hunting falcon, Andrew Blackshire has Christmas completely under control. As his sister's impending marriage signals the inevitable drifting apart of the Blackshire family, it's his last chance to give his siblings the sort of memorable, well-planned holiday their parents could never seem to provide. He has no time to dawdle, no time for nonsense, and certainly no time to drive the falconer's vexing, impulsive, lush-lipped, midnight-haired daughter to a house party before heading home. So why the devil did he agree to do just that? It couldn't be more deliciously mixed up. Lucy Sharp has been waiting all her too quiet life for an adventure, and she means to make the most of this one. She's going to enjoy the house party as no one has ever enjoyed a house party before, and in the meanwhile, she's going to enjoy every minute in the company of amusingly stern, formidably proper, and outrageously handsome Mr. Blackshire. Let him disapprove of her all he likes. It's not as though they'll see each other again after today. Or will they? When a carriage mishap and a snowstorm strand the pair miles short of their destination, threatening them with scandal and jeopardizing all their Christmas plans. They'll have to work together to save the holiday from disaster. And along the way, they just might learn that the best adventures are the ones you never would have thought to plan. Love it. I want to start with the heroine. So our heroine is Lucille Sharp, Lucy Sharp. She lives with her dad. Her mother passed away. And we'll discover later in the novel, after that carriage mishap, which was actually a violent wreck when the carriage goes over a pothole and blows its wheel out, that her mother actually died in a carriage accident. So she's raised by her father, who is quite progressive for his day. He's an atheist. He also raises birds of prey. He's a baron. And, you know, a man of science, he's obsessed with his, like, he has a letter from some theologian, I can't remember which one, not Hume, not Hume, not one of the biggins. No, it was from Hume. I know. I was saying Hume isn't one of the biggins. Oh. He hasn't stood the test of time quite like some of his contemporaries. Which I think is a fun detail. I think everything about the dad is a fun detail, even in like his like weirdo eccentricity. And like they have this amazing conversation because he's very particular about who will buy birds. Like he takes his hobby job very seriously as a baron. And like he wants to know that like you'll be proficient at caring for the bird of prey. And like he wants to know what kind of hunting you do. You have the right emotional base relationship. Yeah. Temperament. Temperament. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so like in some ways he feels like a very exacting breeder of like labradoodles, except labradoodles that are, you know, going to eat voles. Anyway, he reminds me of one breeder that I met one time when my friend was getting a dog. And I was like, oh, I'm soothed by your thoroughness because I think that's the appropriate response to giving a living creature to someone. Like you don't just want to hand it off to somebody who like doesn't know anything about it. And if you're a labradoodle breeder, I bet you see a lot of guys in plaid shirts and puffer vests who don't actually like dogs. Especially at Christmas time, you know, people are trying to buy puppies or like live animals for their sister, which is where our hero comes in. And they're like, your sister has never owned a bird. She doesn't falcon. Why are you getting her one? She doesn't hunt, period. Right. Like, this isn't a good idea. It's not like a cat. But we'll get into his motivations for getting her a falcon or a hawk. But yes, so Lucy assists her father in the raising and development of falcons and analyzing the people who come to procure them. But Lucy hasn't had like a normal upbringing because of her father's eccentricities. And I think like a lot of kids who grew up in progressive households could relate to this in that, you know, she really wanted a season in London because she's a baroness, right? She should get a season in London so she can meet her husband. But now she's 21 and her father was like, what's the 
point of that? That's outdated. That's silly. I'm not interested, right? You know, he's very cerebral, so he doesn't have that connection to her to see that she's wanting. But her aunt and uncle are going to have this house party for Christmas in their own estate. And so her father allows her to go, which is 12 days of Christmas, Isabeau's personal dream. Mm-hmm. So she really wants to go, but then this super handsome guy who she meets on the road, unbeknownst to one another, right? This real uptight, type A motherfucker named Andrew, who is so type A that in a storm, he is sitting on the front with his carriage driver, his coachman, because he's the one who will know the house that he also has never seen before, (laughs) where he's going to procure this hawk. And as they're riding down, there's like a storm, there's rain, there's wind, not like a thunderstorm. And they come across this girl on the path and her hair is down and wild and her lips are enormous. And he's so overcome with lust that he forgets the rules of propriety, which are so important to him as the oldest of five children, you know, basically like ye old latchkey kids. And (laughs) he offers her a ride and she's like, no, I'm fine. And he's like, well, thank God she said no. Like, it would have been terrible if she said no. What was I thinking? Well, at least I'll never see her again. And then sure enough, she's the person he has to negotiate with to secure a hawk. And Lucy thinks he is so cute. She thinks he's so handsome that she is willing to bend her own standards for who can have a hawk just to keep him around a little bit longer. She keeps him around so long that he ends up having to spend the night, which he doesn't want to do. He doesn't like wearing the same dirty clothes the next day. He does not. He does not care for travel. He's very type A, very particular. Very particular. And then sure enough, Lucy is getting ready to go to her aunt and uncle's house party and discovers that her coachman is too sick to take her. And she's like, that's fine. I'll just manipulate Andrew over breakfast to take me. And he doesn't want to. He thinks it's super wrong that she would be unaccompanied. No chaperone. No chaperone. Just her lady maid. But she's able to appeal to her father, who is... Right, the guy who has more authority, who has more rank. And he's like, yeah, if you won't not rape her because a lady maid is there, like what difference does status really make? And like also you and I both know you're not that kind of guy. It's fine. I loved this scene because it said a lot of things really quickly and really humorously, which I think are really useful, right? In some ways, like Andrew's made to be made a fool in this scene, which is both like really satisfying and also like fun to watch where he's like, of course I can't take her. She doesn't have a chaperone. It's against propriety's rules. And the dad's like, well, if you're not going to try anything, like whatever. And then he's like, it's not that I would try anything. It's that somebody might. And then he's like, but we're not talking about just anybody. We're talking about you in the singular. Don't you hold yourself to the higher standard that you wouldn't do it? And like this amazing conversation, he gets so flustered and so angry so quickly. And he's like, absolutely not. And then our very smart heroine, Lucy, remembers that someone else is coming to buy a bird of prey later that day. And she's like, well, I guess I'll just go with that guy. That total stranger. That total stranger who is an abstract idea of a man and not a specific person like you who wouldn't do anything. So actually, it's like more wrong. You know, she doesn't say it, but she's just very clever and like is playing both her father and him. Like a fiddle, even though she's like so the opposite of worldly. Mm-hmm. Like she understands people. Yes. She's an incredible student, both of her father, but also like she's an excellent and really observant person. And it's also I think it comes from like she's described very compassionately, like the whole thing with Johnny Coachman, where he like sprains his wrist and can't take her and she's sad. And then her lady's maid is sad and she's like, oh, oh, wait, she's not sad for me. She's sad because Sarah, my lady's maid, wanted to spend Christmas with her family and now won't be able to. How can we? maneuver so that I can go to the house party and Sarah can go hang out with her family. But then she just uses the same maneuver where she's like, I'll just get in a carriage with whoever's the next guy that comes down the road then. Like, she has the key. Why would she try to go for a lockpick after she already has the key in her pocket? I know, but I think, like, that's one of the things that I really enjoyed about Lucy is that, like, while it is self-serving and she's nakedly honest about that, it's always a yes and. She's like, ooh, I want to go to the house party and I really want Sarah to have like this fun Christmas and like that maneuver of like being aware of her surroundings. 
and the people in it. What a true Christmas spirit to be like, I can be happy and also I can help make you happy. It's not an either or situation, right? And I think her reflection is like, think how bad I would feel having my lady maid there. I would not be able to have a good time, right? Yeah. Knowing that she's got this husband, not this husband, but like her brother brought a friend back from the Navy and they're very (laughs) flirty. And she's like, they're so flirty. "Uh," And beautiful foreshadowing. So Andrew, our hero, agrees to escort her to her aunt's house and they stop on the way and Andrew's such a dick. He's like, you can have 30 minutes to her maid. You can have 30 minutes to hang out with your family. And she sees her maid having this connection with this really cool guy. And so (laughs) she does this maneuver, right? And she tells Andrew like, I think we'll be hearing some really great news on our way back. And he's like, no one could fall in love in a week. You're mistaken. Mm -hmm. And she's like, all right. He's a Navy man. He's like, gets to go. I also love that, too. There's like something so practical in this book that is also like wrapped up in this delicious fantasy that I find incredibly fun. And like that was one of those moments of foreshadowing where like the practicality of like he's a Navy man. He got to get married quick kind of came up against it. And there was another thing that I was thinking. So Lucy goes to the inn so Sarah can meet her whole family. And there's like a passel of kids and her parents and this like super hot Navy man who keeps like moving so he can keep Sarah in view. And Lucy says this thing where she's like, it was every watcher's dream because like her brother comes back from the Navy and like picks her up and swings her around. And it's like Lucy's always at a remove. She's always witnessed. She's always voyeur. And so like the pleasure of seeing a reunion and like taking that pleasure was so strange. I don't know that I've ever seen another romance like talk about voyeurism that way, like experiencing the joy of someone else at a remove and someone that you don't even really know, but like that pleasure where it's like, and he spun her around and then he like chucked her chin and like did all the stuff that brothers do. And she really wants that because like she grew up alone. And Oh yeah, only child. Only child. Andrew is a classic oldest. She's a classic only. She is a classic only. That scene also serves to foreshadow our later Christmas where she is very much in the fray. She's very much a part of this other world. And I love that. I love that this book made that choice that it was going to have a baroness and, you know, lordly titled people, but then it kind of eschews it. And you start to see shades of it whenever Sarah comes to tell Lucy that the coachman is too sick to take her to her aunt and uncles. And she uses the coachman's actual last name and is like, oh, but you know him as John Coachman. And I never thought of that before, that you wouldn't even like know the last name of your employees. You would just know them by their job that they serve in your home, which was really striking. And then we see later, so she convinces Andrew once again that he's going to take her to her aunt and uncle's house. No one's going to see her even get out of his carriage, so why would it matter? They can just lie and say he's a footman, worst case scenario. And he's like, whatever. And he's getting sweatier and sweatier at the idea of lying, but he does it. All the while when we're in his close third, he's rationalizing it as like the the lesser of two evils, but in actuality, I think the text understands that he just likes being around her. Mm-hmm. And their wheel blows out in their carriage, so they have that whiff of death, which brings them together quite quickly. And they end up spending Christmas with the couple whose house was closest to where their carriage wheel blew out because it's really hard to find someone to repair your carriage Christmas Eve and then Christmas Day, as it eventually comes to be. And they end up spending Christmas Eve and Christmas Day with this couple. I guess they would have been middle class. They were definitely farmers. So they were landed farmers. Like they owned their own property. They had an outbuilding. They had a maid and a workman named Ned, the Porters. And it's pretty clear pretty immediately that they've fallen on pretty hard times. Well, it's explained in the book because our heroine has that moment of realization where she's like, oh, they recently had to pay a dowry. I bet they haven't recovered from that yet. But also she says like it's more than that, like because they're reusing tea, they only have the one fire and that fire's in the kitchen. So it's like a big deal when they're like the parlor will be warm in a little bit. We just didn't light a fire in there today. And like that was one of the things where this book, I think, was really sophisticated in the way that it talked about poverty and pride and also the way that like 
people save on things and like how you would back then where it's like every room needs a fire because you don't have a furnace. And so like it's a big deal that they light a fire. I think that's really interesting that you say poverty and pride. Well, because there's this moment where he's been working on the carriage and he comes in and he's like, oh, man, I really want that tea. Who's he? Our hero, Andrew. He comes in. He's like, I'm really looking forward to like this really fortifying tea. And she steps totally in front of him so nobody else can see his face. And she goes, this tea is made the way that you like it it doesn't have any of the bitterness and he takes that to understand in that moment he's like oh it's weak and then they have that moment in the parlor together where she's like I think they're really poor like I saw her reusing these tea leaves and like they've only just lit this fire like I feel really bad but I don't want to embarrass them and then they have this conversation about like what it is to be a host and what it is to be a guest and like how to be cognizant and careful of people's pride without taking advantage But that's their shit. That's not the porter's shit. We don't get the porter's perspective. I understood it as like poverty, but hospitality, as opposed to an issue of pride. I think like the idea of pride is definitely like, you know, protecting and being like a good guest is about not making the host feel uncomfortable. And so heading that off. They're careful of the porter's pride. Like that's their shit, right? It's not though, because they're clear about it with the porters, because when they go to church the next day and the porters don't want to go to that party that like they've been invited to and the woman is like you have to make them go and like it's really clear that she's been trying to offer and that the porters have been closed off because of whatever financial difficulty they've been in well the reasoning is is that the porters don't want to accept an invitation that they can't return right and so they weren't hosting a party that year and that's an expectation of I think once again for me that was about being hospitable but I think that does illustrate the difference in class Mm mm-hmm And that our hero and heroine are like, oh, they would be ashamed, right? Which isn't necessarily the case. Like the porters are stretching themselves, sure. But we don't know if they feel embarrassed about it specifically. I think it's a lot of potential shame that's being read into it by the hero and heroine. I mean, I'll grant you that we're only in their perspective. But what I really like about it in like the framework of like a Christmas novella is that it is about hospitality and welcoming in strangers, whoever they may be, and, you know, making it work and having fun together, right? They go out and they cut the boughs off the evergreens around the house and they have like a really festive, fun Christmas. They go visit the neighbors, right? And the neighbors don't have any expectations, right? They're like, oh, please just bring them. Like whatever reasons they have for not wanting to come, right? It's definitely our heroine's assumption that it's like an invitation that they don't or I don't know if it's the person who says that but in any case right the neighbors are saying like please bring the porters right and the porters are saying like of course you can stay with us for Christmas I know I'm looking it up I like I know that they have this conversation and that like there is like an indication with the porters like that they've had a financial difficulty where the porters say we've had a financial difficulty no where the neighbors say it but there's like an indication on the porter's face well that's a really short passage in the church before the party. Yeah, there's that part, but I'm thinking earlier where they have to share the one bed. But there aren't any neighbors there. No, it's on the porter's face. It's fine if it's just your interpretation and it's just my interpretation. There doesn't have to be hard evidence. I mean, everything in romance is meant to be so like evocative, right? And there's not like a lot of evidence in these books. Like there's not too much guidance, right? Like even if we think about the way our heroine is described, we have like three features. She's tall, she's got lots of dark hair, and she has luscious lips, right? And that allows us to basically picture ourselves as if we were tall and dark hair and luscious lips. It's like not a barrier. No, I mean, I agree with you. And I think like, that's fine. Your interpretation of it being about pride is totally legitimate, like regardless of whatever's in the book. I think it's interesting that you had that interpretation when I felt like it was about something else. I think that's fine, too. But I think the reason why I'm being obstinate in this is that I think it points to what we were talking about with Lucy earlier, where it's like for such a naive, sheltered person, she really has this really intense ability to read people. And one of the moments that she does this is when she notices the tea thing, she notices the fire in the front place, and that they don't have a goose or a turkey for Christmas dinner, that they're not even making a pie. And then there's this moment where an anxious crease appeared in Mrs. Porter's brow. It will be far smaller than you're used to, I fear. She's talking about the one bed that they have to share. It's fairly quick to warm once we've laid the fire, though. And then he's trying to save propriety, and he's like, I'm a restless sleeper. 
sleeper. We share separate rooms, which is also such a weird... So our, our hero is like, we sleep in separate rooms. It's very mid-century housewife. Yeah. Yeah. And she says, I'm so sorry. Mrs. Porter's face flushed. She looked down at her hands, smoothing her skirts. The fact is, we don't have another bed in the house. Mr. Porter's still standing before the sofa touched her shoulder. How much must it pain them to have their strange circumstances laid bare before a pair of fine and privileged strangers? Yeah, I think that's, yeah. But I still, I don't know. I think both things are true then. You're right. I mean, that's totally their shit. Because we're in the close third. You know, she might have felt embarrassed, but, you know, we don't know the most prescient part. And I think that's the thing about the fact that it's a Christmas book is that I'm always more willing to believe that it's about (laughs) something like some kind of positivism. Hmm. For example, the fact that this book has no villains. Mm Mm-hmm. Not a single villain. I really loved that. And it's still super interesting. Oh, yeah. Super interesting. And there isn't really a dark night of the soul either. None of them do something terrible and unforgivable. There is that moment where (laughs) she's in the carriage, you know, after the wreck. And the carriage has gone fully, like, onto its side. Mm -hmm. And our hero had been riding up front because he's a fucking, I don't know. He's, like, such a wet blanket. He's not. He's really interesting. He is a bit of a wet blanket. But he's being a wet blanket. I mean, yeah, he's like, as he calls himself, what, like an uptight, upper class prig? Yeah, he calls himself a prig. And that's exactly right. Yeah, boys knows himself. But he's sitting up front and the carriage is about to get into an accident. And he decides that he's going to hold on. He sees his coachman jump off. Mm-hmm. He decides that he's going to hold on because it's better that someone stays close to the lady in the carriage itself. He's okay mm-hmm. once it goes topsy-turvy, but he doesn't go to check on her for a while. And then he finally goes to look in on her and she's like shivering and curled up in a ball and she's fine. And he talks to her about it. And she's like, no, actually, my dad used to do these drills with me because my mother died in a carriage accident. He's like, I am such a fucking idiot. <laughs> and I think that's a moment when he realizes that she has more depth. Mm-hmm. She's not dumb. She's not frivolous. She's not frivolous. Right. Exactly. She's not frivolous. Yes, she's not frivolous. That's exactly right. And I think that is as close as we get to a dark night of the soul. I think it is, too. I mean, there are so many interesting moments that are actually like deceptively deep for such a short Christmas novella. And I'm like, I'm not sure if it's the season. I'm not sure if it's like obviously the quality of this writing. But like in that moment where he is like, shit, I didn't do enough to comfort you. He also has this realization where he's like, I should have jumped free. Like I could have literally died. And then like she'd really be alone and like my siblings wouldn't have me. And there's this conversation about him and his siblings where there are five of them. And she's like, oh, five is like a lot. And he's like, well, it was actually nine, but like four of them died, were stillborn or or died directly after. And I was like, that's such a thing to put in such a short romance. Like that's such a choice. His mother also died in childbirth on number 10, which like comes in and out of the narrative, I think, for emotional like resonance in terms of like his fears around marriage, which was also interesting. And like, I think there were so many of those details that really filled in, as you say, the projector screen of this formula, like for a Christmas novella, and I've read numerous at this point, it felt so strangely fresh, even though we had literally just read There's Only One Bed like a week ago. It's stuff like that. Well, I think maybe that's it, is that the short form of this book and how effective and arresting it is. It also relies on so many romance tropes. Just one bed, fake couple, other ones. I don't know. (laughs) But you know what I mean? Like it has more than one. It has at least two, which is more than most books. Forced proximity, one bed, fake couple. I mean, that's three right there. And for a novella, that's a lot. This book is so effective. This book lived up to the very high expectations for me that were set by the raging inferno of insistence that we read this book. And how many pages is it? It's pretty long for a novella. It's long for a novella, but short for a novel, which is like a weird space also to exist in. It's like a mock turtleneck. (laughs) It's a Christmas dickie. It's a Christmas dickie! It's a Christmas dicky. Oh, God, yes. Whenever I think of Christmas dicky, I think of the SNL short about Martha Stewart doing just the topless Christmas dicky. 
A dicky could be pretty sexy. Think of a slow pan from the top of the head, and you're like, oh, this lady's wearing a, a turtleneck. Hmm. And then it's just like a little bib over some bared breasts. <laughs> what could be hotter? Literally nothing. Some little holly <laughs> embroidered on the collar. Right? Just a little, little wreath right here at the center between the breasts. <laughs> anyway, it's a Christmas dicky. It just slaps. One of the things that I think is so great about this that it does without being obtrusive and sort of like this hallmark Christmas movie moment we all live in where there's like often this like very distinctive scene break. I want your life, but yeah. (laughs) When I spill my coffee on my shirt, no person, let alone a handsome person in a flannel shirt offers to help me. Sometimes I find it in this moment where it's like I read them and I know that that's like a scene break, right? Like if it were a screenplay, like that's where it would do like a jump cut or like we'd move on to the next thing. Oh, yeah. And like not to say that this book didn't have them because it did, but they were much cheekier. They were woven in in a way where I didn't notice them as much. So while this book is, I think, very cinematic in some of its mechanizations, it's also truly and deservedly in its book form. Like it does the thing that books do really well, which is being in people's heads, which I think like some of the Christmas novellas that are in like the Hallmark movie mode are getting away from. Yeah. I'm just reflecting on like what makes this book work. And I think like, first of all, just two days, like a time frame. (laughs) Like, just two days. No villain, right? And I think that's wonderful to recognize that villains are actually typically extraneous. And when I look back on our show, like, so many times the villain is the weirdest part where we're like, what was the point of this? Yeah. Besides to hurt my feelings a little bit about being kind of (laughs) slutty, you know? Right, because the villain is so often a woman. So often a woman. And a woman who, like, (laughs) I identify with. (laughs) Or at least I sympathize with. Right, and it would be pretty chill to hang out with. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The kind I would hang out with. Yeah, I think you're right. And like how strangely refreshing that like the obstacle is just them getting to know each other. Exactly. And nothing like crazy. It's not like she's like tremblingly like my mother died in a carriage accident. You know, will I ever love? And it's so true. He is like, how could we ever be in a relationship together? Right. It is like opposites attract yet another trope. But he is like not only is she completely different from anyone I would ever imagine myself being with. Like, it doesn't make sense for us to be together logistically. Yeah. It goes against my moral fiber, which is entirely informed by the social structure that I believe in. And that has protected me and saved me. And even if I did like her, we've transgressed too much. How will we ever be able to see each other in a different way? Ben also eventually comes to the conclusion that, like, I'm the only man she's met. He does come to that conclusion. And also, I think some of the things that are so sophisticated in their revelation, right? Like, because he is a prig. And, like, one of the things that she likes best about him is like niggling him, making him uncomfortable, making him blush. Like she loves that she has met a man who blushes. That's what she thinks is so like beautiful about him. I related to her so much. You love making men blush? Yes. (laughs) I don't know if you may have guessed. I don't know if you may have seen the result and worked backwards. I love a gentle boy. You do love a gentle boy. I love a soft boy. Not a soft boy. A gentle boy. I get it. I am trying to get this term off the ground, which is for a good soft boy is a gentle boy. I think that's right. Because like, I think soft boy is about like some kind of like latent misogyny, right? Not only that, I think it's also like soft boys are somehow entitled. Mm, Yes. Soft boys also feel like the guys who say like, girls never want nice guys like that feels like a soft boy thing not a gentle boy thing yeah and I think gentle boys are boys who cry when they watch inside out and then whenever you bring up bing bong yeah over a delicious cheesecake factory lunch later on they also cry in the cheesecake factory that's a gentle boy that's what you're looking for to also point out how relevant this book is to our contemporaneous moment I think people because of dating apps have become so hung up on like shared interests right Mm -hmm. how important are shared interests actually Mm -hmm. if anything my interests are like a place I go to when I need to get away from my relationship right Mm -hmm. like my own things for my own self 
Mm-hmm. It's not that like we read the same kind of books or it's not that we like the same shit. It's just that like we're open to each other's shit. But that actually comes from the fact that like there's something else about the other person that you just like. Right. I think you're right. That is a conversation that sort of gets lost where it's like this like drive for simpatico in terms of interests. Like he calls it the effort to abide. And I was like, that's so fucking nice what a nice phrase that is and like what is it that like you just really want to be around somebody even if what they're speaking like when she's talking about stuff that he's like less than interested in and he's just so animated by her animation that you don't have to be conversant you don't have to have all the shared text and like in some ways it's nice not to yes you don't have to have all the shared text because I don't want to be like shared interests are bad, but like you don't have to have all the same shared texts, right? Yeah. That's it. Part of that is like, if you're both so conversant in it, then it's like, you don't get to share it in the same way. Like you don't get to share that joy, which means that you also don't get to witness that joy. Like you don't get to witness someone geeking out over their shit. And like, I think this book was so good at that quiet sort of realization where like, he really comes to this conversation where he's like, I've been thinking about this all wrong. And her on her end, she's like, I don't want to shackle myself to somebody who's going to always be correct me or always be trying to curtail me and then they have this like insane moment at the end where he's like really kind of like laying his heart on the line and she's like I don't know if this feeling transitory or permanent and I don't know how to know because I've never felt either of them I think this is a perfect time to start talking about the hero yes This week's episode of Womance is brought to you by our friends at Kensington Books and their new release, Don't Look, by Alexandra Ivey. You may know Ivy from previous appearances on Amazon Romance of the Month list with You Will Suffer and What Are You Afraid Of? It turns out You Will Suffer wasn't a promise, just a regular title. Who to thunk? That title might be regular, Morgan, but the books are anything but. Demonstrating her strong plotting ability, Alexandra Ivy delivers a tale full of chilling suspense and unforgettable twists. Her blend of electrifying thrills, complex characters, and top pacing is certain to captivate readers of romantic suspense and crossover female thrillers readers. Ooh, female crossover alert. Let's read that summary. Headline, if you're on his list, you're as good as dead. A woman's naked body is discovered, cold and pale as the surrounding snow. Except for the crimson scarf around her neck, the weeks that follow will bring more victims and evidence of a terrifying pattern. The killer has a list, and every woman on it will get what she deserves. Dr. Lynn Gale followed in her father's footsteps to become a vet in Pike, Wisconsin. Do you know it, Isabeau? (laughs) I knew a person named Pike from Wisconsin. Close enough. For years, she's had little contact with Kier Jansen, son of the town's late sheriff. Suddenly, he's back, insisting Lynn's in danger. She can't believe anyone would target her, but someone is hunting the women of Pike savoring every last moment. Kira hoped that his father's frantic calls about a serial killer were just an old man's delusions. But the body count doesn't lie. In this quiet town, a monster stalks and kills, and soon, Lynn will be the last name on his list. Sounds like a really great stalking suffer for my mom, a woman whose favorite TV show is The X-Files until it was Hannibal. She loves bloody novels like this, and I think the romantic twist will be perfect. Amazing. Be sure to get your loved ones who appreciate harder edges Spencer, just yourself a copy of Don't Look by Alexandra Ivy from Kensington Books. Mwah! So I think we should talk about the hero. What brings him to the Baron's house to fetch a hawk? Andrew Blackshear was the oldest of five living siblings. Right. And his next oldest sibling, his sister, Kitty, is getting married. And this is the last Christmas that they'll all have. And Kitty is marrying a sporting man, a hunting man. And he knows that Kitty doesn't hunt. And so he wants her to be able to share in that interest with her new husband, but have something that's also totally her own. Which he doesn't realize means she's not going to be able to hunt with her husband who uses dogs. Right. And guns. Yeah. (laughs) 
Like, falconry is totally different. He's like, oh, I'm a very practical person. I want my sister to have this connection with her husband so that they'll have a happy marriage. But actually, more than a practical person, I am just a person. And I am so worried that my sister is going to change or lose herself. So I'm going to sabotage that subconsciously (laughs) with a Christmas present. A living creature that neither of us know anything about and is more an obligation for my sister and her new husband than a gift. It's just like such a perfect encapsulation of like intention versus impact where like his intention is so beautiful and noble and like the perfect big brother intention. Just the working of it out is so fucking dumb. It's so dumb. And it's like really revealed to him quite quickly that he was an idiot. Yeah. And that it was also like the move of a desperate man. Like I think like over the course of the journey of the book, he realizes how desperate he truly is. Probably about the time, okay, so they have to share one bed. He's not into it. He's like, I'm going to sleep on the floor. And his teeth are chattering and our heroine feels so bad. She's like, look, we'll sleep back to back. It's enough space we don't have to touch. I won't be able to sleep with your teeth chattering and no one has to know, right? You already undid my bra, my stays. Like, it's fine. So he gets into the bed with her and then he has a sexy dream, which is described to us and is just surreal enough to pass for a real sexy dream. I think it's so hard probably to write a fake dream. That isn't just like overloaded with symbolism or like isn't too literal. I think Cecilia Grant had this actual sex dream because I think that's the only way you could write it as well as she does. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. But he's in this sex dream and then he quickly realizes that he has actually dry humped her back to his own completion. It wasn't mutual. No, it was not. And I think in that moment, maybe he realizes like he's a little high strung, like a little too high strung. Not like it's just my personality high strung. No, he's like, oh shit, like this might be a problem. It's so funny too, because they have this conversation where she's like, you didn't mean it, blah, blah, blah. It's like totally fine. And she's like trying to be as chill as possible. And meanwhile, she's like, it's on my back. It's on my back. It's on my back. Right. And like she's a virgin raised by an aesthetic atheist who like is a progressive and probably was like Mary Wollenstone craft, but also literally doesn't know enough about like procreation. And like he's also a virgin, which I think is very funny. Yeah. And so like together, they're both like highly embarrassed and like mortified, but they're also trying to put each other at ease about it, which is also like this very weird dance that they enter into. But it's that like, once again, that idea of like intention versus reality, where on their conscious level, they both probably are like, this person is weirded out by it. So I need to comfort this person as opposed to like honoring their own subconscious. That's like, "Ah!" (laughs) you know, which is the sound. You just make it worse when you do that. I should take my own advice after the fact. I'm always like, I should have just been like, hey, that was weird. Or like, hey, that was embarrassing. Or like, hey, I made a mistake. And you made a mistake. I was freaked out by what you did. Instead of being like, I have to help this person who's clearly, (laughs) meanwhile, I'm being like, helped, air quotes, by the other person who's equally has their hair on fire. Totally. It's like, we're both like, doing a terrible job of helping each other and ourselves. It's charming. And it's funny. It is charming. Charming. I was so charmed by their bumbling attempts to help each other while they're internally screaming. And then like they both sort of like recover and like he goes outside for like two hours and like cuts like cedar and fir tree boughs and like holly and like works out all of his like angst. And then he comes back better. Full of the Christmas spirit. Uh, Full of the Christmas spirit and like wants to like decorate the porter's poor little house. Then he like wants to have this real talk with her. And he's like in marriage. I want you to know that it's not like what it was like last night and like your husband your future husband whoever he is not me definitely not me should seek your pleasure (laughs) and he like feels so encumbered to like tell her this yeah he's like god I gotta like I gotta explain I gotta explain and I was just so charming it's so charming and there's also once again to bring it back to Christmas that like hands-on homespun aspect of it Mm -hmm. because she's like I've never decorated before thank you so much for complimenting how I decorated the dining room (laughs) 
I've never actually gotten to do it before. I wasn't sure if I was doing a good job. And then he just like subtly tucks in one of the stems so that they're stem to stem so that it looks more like a singular, you know. But we're experiencing that moment in his perspective. So we know that even though he's like correcting, right, he's also genuinely appreciative of what she was able to do and that he's able to come in and make those edits because she's already done such a beautiful job, which was all that Beyonce was asking of her dancers at the beginning of that Coachella documentary and they ruined her anniversary and I think that they should still feel bad about it I bet they do but (laughs) sure they do especially because Jay-Z at the end was like it's my anniversary thanks guys Jay-Z you cheated on her we all remember I wouldn't have to dance to this sad ass song if you had been able to keep it together Jesus crimes but what I like about it is that you and I on this show in fact have read so many books about a Christmas house party and I was so worried that we were going to read another Christmas house party book. House parties are interesting. I think house parties are fascinating. They're really interesting. I didn't feel like I missed anything. Like there was still this aspect of like going to the different parties in the village, going to the church and like seeing what's what. Very evocative of some scenes from Emma. Yes. This book felt like Emma fan fiction to me in a lot of ways. Name them. First, we have our priggish, well-intentioned, kind, but a little bit stupid Mr. Knightley. He's younger in this version, and he's also a virgin, which is never how I've envisioned Mr. Knightley. But what was funny is, like, once I made the connection that she loved to make him blush, where I was like, oh, that's an Emma move. And then, like, all I could think about was the new adaptation of Emma. So then I was envisioning Andrew Blackshire as that pillow-lipped blondie. From Scrotal Recall, and he's also in this movie called (laughs) where he's the murderer. Yeah, that guy. Because, like, his lips are stunning. He's a handsome man. He's an interesting-looking man, though. He's not classically handsome. Right, exactly. He's greater than the sum of his parts. Like, if I saw a picture of his lips, I would probably be like, ugh, even, you know? Yes. And those are probably his best feature. No, I totally agree. His nose. Also his eyes, which are very wide all the time. But then it comes together and you're like, oh, yes. No, I totally agree. He had this sort of bumbling propriety where, like, he understood the rules and he lived by them too hard. He's too rigid. He's inflexible. And, like, understanding the rules is different than knowing the rules and like he knew the rules he understands the ideas behind the rules but he's never experienced them so he doesn't get that like nuance and shade so he can tell you why he can be like because there are men who would take liberties but he doesn't know what the actual function right right and so then when he's like confronted by her like eccentric father where he's like well you would never do it so like what's the deal and then he's like well the rules say that I don't and it's like that that sort of like dismantling of someone who's put up a very thin shell and the thin shell is propriety and society's rules and like once that really gets stripped away from him it's like really unmooring he believes it's moral but he hasn't lived enough to have morals right exactly and like he is like a moral and good man but it's not society's proprietary rules that made him so it's like his compassion and ability to think of others yes and I think that really comes to a head so our couple they spend that night and he jizzes on her back Christmas Eve with the porters and then they go with the porters to church and the idea is that after church he's gonna go and ask the wheel smith there's a name for it but I can't remember who's like 10 hours away or something two towns over if he can fix his wheel on Christmas day which seems like a hopeless endeavor anyways but while they're at the church one of the neighbors of the porters comes up and once again invites the porters to a party And she says, listen, I understand that you didn't want to come when it was just the two of you, but you have young people staying with you now. And young people, they want to dance on Christmas. You got to come to my house. I'm going to have so much food. So they decide that they're going to go because they know the porters are going to have a good time. So they ask that they can go. And also, you know, the porters don't really, they have like a chicken in the icebox, you know, and a pie, a dried apple pie, which pie is pastry. Mm-hmm. I cannot make it. Mm. I shouldn't treat this podcast like a confessional, but there it is. I hear you. I like having my toes sucked and I can't make pastry. Now you go. I am a voyeur and I, I mean, you said you can't make pastry. I can't make pastry either. I burned the last pie crust that I tried, which was for Thanksgiving. 
yeah, I mean, I cook hearty foods, but like I am bonkers bad at dessert. I don't even have hot hands. There's no excuse for why I'm as bad at pastry as I am. My hands are so cold, they're pruned in the whole winter. Doctors don't at me. I know that it's probably a bigger problem than I'm giving it credit for. Like a circulation issue? Shh. My arm goes asleep when I'm standing. (laughs) That's not good. Like you need to add that to your list. I think it's because my boobs are too big and my bra strap cuts. <laughs> I don't think it's that. No, it's because my boobs are too big and my body is too hot for this world. That seems right. And that's why my arm goes to sleep. I don't need help. Okay. I'll be here when you want it. Well, I don't need it. Okay. I believe you. I feel like my things were a little bit more specific. And your thing was general. You were like, I'm a voyeur and I burned a pie crust, which is kind of just copying my thing. You put me on the spot. Like, I didn't know that we were doing Woman's Confessional. I didn't know either. I think we do it every week and we don't realize. It's true. I can't put on eyeliner. I was like, jab my eye. And like, I do all the tutorials. I've been watching those like Instagram stuff. I do the YouTube. I love watching the YouTube makeup stuff. I just can't do it to save my literal life. Like gun to my head, can't put on eyeliner. Have you noticed though, like everyone on YouTube, they have a different way of doing their eyeliner. And that just tells me that like, don't go to YouTube for help. Good point. You're on your own with eyeliner. It's true. I got to find my own way. Got to find my own way. Everyone who's good at it, it's like playing guitar. Yeah, but like not learning to play guitar. It's like you just feel the vibe. You feel the vibes. And I'm like, that's not helpful. Explain it to me in a way that I can learn it. And also your fingers are going to hurt a lot. Also, <laughs> like playing guitar. Okay, be more specific about the voyeur thing. How do you act that out? How do I act that out in my real life? Yes. I don't know. I don't right now because of the pandemic. But I used to go and watch strangers have sex. No. I mean, I would, but I didn't do that. You know, it's like people watching. I think that's why I was so tickled when she talked about the pleasure of like, it was everything that a watcher could have wanted when like the brother came and like picked her up. And like, I know that Love Actually is a shit movie, but that beginning with the voiceover with Hugh Grant, when he's like, I like to go to the arrivals and like watch people go like show up and hug each other that shit gets me the woman's confessional is open i don't think love actually is actually a bad movie i think it's a problematic movie i think it's probably like a good movie you know what i mean it's like too affecting it's very affecting it's really good at what it does but like the thing that it does is maybe not great great yeah and like the further we get away from it in time like the less it holds up and like that's like what you don't want to have happen to a movie it doesn't stand up to a lot of critical inquiry (laughs) but in the moment say the least and I think you and I have been there on this show quite a few times <laughs> where it doesn't hold up to critical inquiry. But in the moment, it was very satisfying. Fair. Emma Corollaries. She's vivacious and young. He's a uh, prig. She has an eccentric father who has given her too much head and leeway. She's got a dead mom. She is extremely observant and has like a ton of really good ideas and is also manipulative. But like her manipulation isn't cruel. It's also like her only outlet. Right. Which also strikes me very strongly of Emma, where it's like Emma needed a better outlet. And like that's kind of like where it is. Like that's sort of where it falls apart after that he's a young virginal nightly and she's like a nicer kinder emma a less socially aware emma Mm-hmm. so she has this really interesting hobby i'm thinking about outlets it's not a hobby that she chose for herself i don't think but it is a hobby that she pursues eagerly right she's interested in falconry there are so many good movies about falconry i've seen a documentary about it i love the movie kess which is about a young boy who gets a kestrel but have you read chronicle of a death foretold by roberto bolaño The book opens with this quote that love is like falconry. I think about that all the time. And what's interesting about falconry, as is pointed out in this book, is that every time the bird comes back, it's a choice on the part of the bird. The bird is never really dependent on you until it decides that it's dependent on you. And in fact, with falconry, you often capture a bird after luring it with prey many times, right? And getting the bird used to like a certain location. And after that point, you bring the bird food, fresh food every day. Sometimes they starve themselves to death. And part of falconry is knowing like that limit 
and being like, okay, I'm going to set this bird free to find its own prey now. But sometimes the bird will give over to you. But even after that point, it's always the bird's decision to come back. And there's always the possibility when you let it go that it's not going to bring you back anything. And the other thing that this book points out is that they're not pets. She says, like, this animal will never feel affection for you. It's not interested in affection from you. You have a different kind of relationship. Dogs and cats are so, like, receptive to that kind of relationship. And even, like, guinea pigs and gerbils, right, things that, like, we've taken so far out of their natural habitat, right, are open to that kind of relationship. Rats are, but that's because rats are, like, very, like, opportunistic and and resourceful, right? So they're like, this is easy, right? Same thing with, like, chickens. I grew up with chickens, and I still eat chicken, and I think that should tell you a lot. (laughs) I think Werner Herzog said, it best when he was like you look into their eyes and you see nothing (laughs) it's true chickens are terrifying they're like small tasty dinosaurs but like the same thing with birds of prey like they don't give a fuck they don't and if they choose to come back to you it's for their own personal convenience not affection it's just because they had nowhere else to go (laughs) that was better than the place you've provided for them i think love is like falconry i totally buy that Yeah, and she says this beautiful thing at the end where it's like you hope that they come back, but you learn to make peace with the idea that they won't. Right, which is what our hero does in the final act after they do hand stuff together. I loved their hand stuff together, I'm not going to lie. And also that moment where he's like, I'm not going to make you that proposal. I'm going to write to you and you're going to or you're going to write to me and like, I'll come see you if you haven't met anybody. Mm-hmm. And she was like, yeah, I, like I might meet somebody. And then she says, I don't think I'm going to meet anybody. He's like, I don't no. think you will either. <laughs> and she doesn't, which brings us. What was your sexiest part, Isabel? In very typical Isabel fashion, I really super duper loved the talk stuff. The talk stuff. <laughs> Always the talk stuff with me. But for me personally, this book was such a strange revelation about better ways to talk about consent. Because there's this line, and it's actually repeated twice, where he's listening for the response in her body. And the first time I read it, I was like, oh, that's a cool way to phrase, like, nonverbal communication. And then, like, in the scene where they're doing hand stuff, where she's like, I want you to stay. I want to share a bed again. And he's like, you know, what's probably going to happen if we share a bed? And she's like, you know, I'm not afraid. I regret nothing. And then, like, you know, they're in the bed for, like, 10 seconds. And she, like, crawls, like, she wriggles her body over to him and they start making out. And there's this moment where he's like untying the lace of her nightgown right before he like pulls it down and is like going to kiss all over her breast. And he's like listening for the response in her body. And I was like, God, what a good line. But then he also like asks her quite literally if he can kiss her breasts. Totally. And like, can I touch you with my hands? And like, he's very verbal as well. Which you need to be, especially when you first meet someone. Totally. And they've only known each other for two days. We're, we're talking about nonverbal consent as like a very romantic, sexy idea, but it's not something you get to practice with strangers. No. And like the fantasy of the thing, it was like I was captivated by the line itself because I think it was so evocative, both of what they were doing. And like that's one of those lines where I think like the sex scenes actually did something really important for characterization and also growth as couple. And that was one of those things where it's like one of the ways that he was showing her his care and consideration was like this listening for the response in her body and like watching for it. And it like it was all throughout. It wasn't just when they were horizontal together in bed. Like there's this scene where they're at the dance and everybody starts like kiss her, kiss her because they're underneath the mistletoe. They land under the mistletoe, which I had always wondered why mistletoe, like how would that work? Like, oh, you just happen to stop under mistletoe. And I was like, oh, of course, it's a dance thing. Right. So good. And so they land there at the end and she gets really flustered. It's going to be her first kiss. There are all these people watching her. She's like really uncomfortable. And he's like prepared to like make some like snappy remark and walk out of the room. But like he's. Well, they do. They try to. They're like, oh, does this apply to married couples like us who are married? (laughs) (laughs) And like he waits for her nonverbal response. And like I just I loved those moments of him because that like those were also moments that felt like especially nightly. 
The first kiss is bad, which I loved. Super love. The first time you do anything, probably not going to be peak performance. Takes practice. In life, that's something you have to remember. Mm-hmm. I think my sexiest part, having said that, was when he was undoing her stays for her the first time, which she couldn't sleep in her stays. And she also didn't have a lady maid and they were sharing a room and she was like, you're going to have to help me out of these. And he had never undone stays before. And so because he's a very particular person, he kind of tried to distract himself by focusing on the specificity of the task that he'd never, you know, fully attained to. But we're in her like perspective most of the time. And like, I loved the ambiguity of like not knowing if he hated it or liked it, not knowing if it was mutual, the experience and also feeling those like briefest touches where she'd never been touched before on her bare back was really great. And what I liked about it is that the book didn't offer any reassurances that he did feel the same way about her and never said like he made fleeting eye contact or anything like that, which made everything that comes after so much more satisfying, right? Like I know it's a romance novel. I know that they're going to have a happily ever after, but that beautiful string was still so satisfying that set up in that moment where like it doesn't, she doesn't know how he feels about it, but that's not necessarily tempering her pleasure in the moment. I think that's such a good point. And I'm really glad that you brought that up because like she gets this thing where she wants him to touch or like kiss the nape of her neck. And she's like, oh, I, I didn't know that that was ever a want mm. mm-hmm. that would happen. Like it's not something that occurs to you until somebody touches you and you in a way and you're like, oh, that shiver felt like a good. She was like, I could have told you all sorts of places that I wanted to be touched because I touched myself. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know something as like otherwise mundane could be like reshaped when there's someone you like touching you there. Yeah. Which there's a lot of wrist touching, which Isabeau pointed out earlier. I love wrist stuff. You do. Can't get enough. I love that about you. Every time I see your wrist, but also like I'm getting to the point where it's like, when are you going to get to the inner elbow too? Like this feels like a piece of land and real estate that like is ripe for the pickings. Get into all the pits, the knee pits, Mm. the elbow pits, Mm. the armpits, the groin pits, all your joints, all the joints, the tender side of all of your joints. Yeah. The ankle, the gaps between your toes. What else is there? The webbing between your fingers. That isn't one where I wish there was more of this. I just feel like people should be like on this more in romance novels, like especially with like just hand touching where it's just like squeezing somebody and they're like webbing. Have you done that shoot the thumb thing? What's the shoot the thumb thing? So make a thumbs up with one hand. Now take your other hand and point a gun at it. Now switch. I can't. It See, it's super hard. That is. That's really difficult. That's like a lot of muscles working together in tandem. It's like also a, a cognitive exercise. Interesting. Something I learned on TikTok. Cool. Smarter every day with TikTok. What's your weirdest part? My weirdest part is... God, this book is so tight. So I think... Like, the epilogue's your weirdest part. I don't want to take that if it is. Yeah, but I think maybe we have the same weirdest part. It's hard to find a weird part in this book. And it's a novella, so I think we should agree on the weirdest part. I don't think that's out of bounds. I hate the epilogue. So the epilogue, our couple, end up together, and the epilogue is the next Christmas. They're married now for real, not for pretend, right? They had to lie about being married so that the couple wouldn't feel weird about letting them stay with them and so they could survive or whatever. And now she's new pregnant. They go back to the Porter's house for Christmas the next year. The Porter's daughter is visiting with them. Why is it weird for you? It was the first time that I felt rather than led, I felt like pandered to and I didn't like it, right? Where it's like we open the epilogue. We know we're at the Porter's and Andrew is speaking and he's like describing how you have to train the Porter's grandbaby and like how to survive a carriage accident. So you have to like surprise the baby as soon as it can walk to like whenever you say overturn to like bundle into a ball and like survive the carriage accident. And so like I'm supposed to understand that this is like him being like fun, like 
good dad material, which I already understood from the text of the novel. It was one of those moments where it's like, I super duper didn't need it. Everything that had been said was perfect. This is only... Hackneyed is too strong a word, but like, I can't think of a softer version of hackneyed. I thought of the lie. That's why it was the weirdest part for me, because they had lied to the porters about the fact that they were married. And now they're spending Christmas with them again. And it's like, okay, so you obviously weren't honest with them because we've heard all about propriety up to this point and that the porters would not be open to welcoming you in their home if they knew that they had let an unwed couple stay in a room that's now married. And like, I believe in like the idea of like a good lie, whatever. Sure. Like that's the only way I could justify it to myself. And then in the fact that it was in a romance novel made it unjustifiable to me. I was like, good lies do not exist in romance novels, right? Like everything should be honest. And like acceptance should be unconditional. Mm -hmm. And it felt like unconditional acceptance by the porters was impossible. I think you're right to say that it is impossible. And I think they also understood it to be impossible. So then like, why would you return to the scene of the live? Really good people. Yeah. And so like, you're just going to perpetrate this lie for the rest of the porters lives. Yeah. Weird. Okay, I guess. Why do they always have to have an epilogue? I don't know why books always have to have an, these books always have to have an epilogue. I don't know either, especially with one that was so tight and like no wasted space or chaff. Like this was just such an excellent maneuver until the very end. But I think it's 100% just to be like, and they're going to have a baby and look at him be a good dad. And like, look, they're back with the porters. Which sucks. Like a baby and an actual marriage being the necessitary part of a romance novel, Happily Ever After, sucks. And like, maybe the question is, why do I always have to read the epilogue, right? Like by nature, it's like optional, but it's in the text and I do it for you, the listener. That's a good point. Womance or nomance? Obviously a womance. Obviously a womance. I also super want to reread Lady Awakened because this takes place with his sister. I didn't realize that they were related. You still have two more days, one more shopping day after the release of this episode to buy this novella and enjoy it if you haven't already. Seriously. And I highly recommend it. If you're in the Christmas spirit, this is a great option. People were right. People were right. The hype was real. The hype was real. And with that, loosen your stays. But never your principles. Mwah! Whoa, golly gee. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. Womance is hosted by Isabel. That's me. And Morgan, that's me. Production is by Nick Gravelin. Our webmistress is the incomparable Jane Bonzac. And our illustration and logo were created by Mary Reichman. They're the best. If you'd like to follow, creep, or connect with us on our social media platforms, you can find us at mans underscore woe on Twitter, womance on Instagram, or email at womancemail at gmail.com. You can also hang out on our amazing website at womancepodcast.com. You can support us by using our code to visit our sponsors or go to our Patreon where we are Womance. Womance is officially part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Discover more podcasts just like our own centering on romance and reading at frolic.media slash podcast. Until next week. Mwah. <laughs>